You're listening to the Seahawks Insiders. Russell takes the snap, steps up in the pocket, looks, has time. Now he's going to throw. Tyler Lockett looks for the ball. He's got it. Touchdown, Seahawks! Getting you ready for Seahawks football every Sunday. The handoff inside to Carson, starts up the middle, now bounces it across the line. He's in. Touchdown, Seahawks! Powered by Seahawks.com. And here is what we are really getting you ready for. It is all the conversations around the upcoming NFL draft. It is so good to be back with you. I'm Jen Mueller alongside John Boyle from Seahawks.com. John Boyle, it has been far too long. It has been. We did this after the season, and I don't think we've talked since. So good good to see you again and be talking about Seahawks football and a draft and an offseason that's been pretty interesting so far. Well, the Seahawks have certainly stayed top of mind during the offseason. I don't think we've actually stopped talking about the Seahawks, at least not individually. How would you characterize just all of the offseason up to this point for the Hawks? I mean, it's I think it's been a pretty successful one. When you look at the moves, you look at the players they were able to get back, the players they were able to add. I'm I'm pretty excited about what this team's done so far this offseason. Obviously, we we gotta wait and see what happens with the draft, and there's a few free agents still out there to to figure out. But yeah, I, I'm very encouraged by what I've seen so far. Well, and I think the first thing we need to recap is taking it all the way back to February when the Seahawks did in fact make a coaching change. And it's important to keep in mind the coaching changes that were made because that will play into how the Seahawks are approaching the rest of the offseason. And what is happening right now is the team goes through their virtual OTAs and starts to put a brand new offense in place. The Seahawks parted ways with Brian Schottenheimer. They hired Shane Waldron. He is a former tight end and long snapper at Tufts, but he was also part of that Rams offense that gave the Seahawks so many problems there in LA the last couple of years. He has made, I think, a very positive first impression, certainly when he met the media, John. How do you read that hire and what's going to happen to the offense as a result? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be one of the most interesting things to watch really all the way up until the season starts because we know an advantage teams have when they change coordinators. Yes, there's learning and there's catching up to you, but the advantage you have is teams don't know for sure what they're going to see. So, I, you know, we'll get glimpses of it in training camp and in the preseason, but we're not really going to know what Shane Waldron's offense looks like until the regular season starts. Obviously, we're, you know, we're all assuming there'll be elements of what the Rams did, and there's some things in that Rams offense I think would be great for Russell Wilson, the Seahawks, the way they move quarterbacks, the way they bootleg, create some easy completions, catch and run opportunities. I, I, I'm really excited to see kind of what his take on it is, how much of it is a Sean McVay offense, how much of it is what he does. And there's obviously going to be some carryover elements of the offense that Russell Wilson likes that they're familiar with. So, um, you know, I, I do think, though, overall, it's it's a good hire. It's a guy that will bring some good ideas to the offense. Well, and I think that you can do both pretty easily, right? You don't have to change everything that Russell Wilson has done, but the Rams had the seventh highest run to pass ratio last season. That's not really changing anything in the Seahawks offense. It's just the way that you would call plays. The Rams had a tendency to run a lot of plays out of just a very few looks that caused problems for the defense. You could do that in Seattle very easily without changing the entire offense. That's really just a formation thing. And then the reduced splits that we saw the Rams use where you get more of the field. Imagine DK Metcalf, if he's lining up a little bit further inside and then he can use that sideline to his advantage a lot more. I see there being a lot of opportunities here without making major changes. Again, 
All of this depends on how Shane wants to implement it. But if it works so well for the Rams, I don't know why you wouldn't try to replicate some of these things with a lot of talent on the Seahawks offense. Yeah, and another big thing these Rams offense have had done well in recent years is protect the quarterback. And some of that's been the guys blocking up front, but a lot of that is the design of plays, the scheme, the way they get the ball out, you know, create some of those easy intermediate completions. So, and Andy Dickerson, who they brought over, he's a running game coordinator here, but he worked on the offensive line line with the Rams and they were a very good pass protecting unit. So I do think that's another advantage of making this changes. You might create ways to avoid some of the hits Russell has been taking. Well, and they did bring in a couple of players that should help with that. Gabe exactly. Jackson is a guard. They brought him in from Las Vegas. I know that he has played right guard. I think that is where he's going to slot in and they're going to slide Damien over to play left guard. Of course, we had the retirement of Mikey Potty and, and that position, they were doing a lot of, of um, sharing those reps during the course of the season. So if you can solidify that offensive line certainly helps with protection. And then the addition of Gerald Everett, who I found was so pleasant and I just enjoyed talking to him when he met with the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was a really interesting guy. He's got, you know, he, he just was pretty entertaining to talk to. And I think he sees this opportunity to, you know, be in a familiar setting coaching wise and really, you know, he's had a really good career so far, but I think both he and the Seahawks are hoping there's a whole nother gear, another level he can take. So it's funny you, you mentioning the guards that when they made that move, my first thought thought was they'll move him to left guard and keep, keep Damian Lewis at right guard because if you go back early enough in Gabe Jackson's career, he did start out at left guard. So we'll see what they want to do. I think, you know, either option works. It's probably just, you know, which guy's more comfortable on the left side. If Lewis can do it, they move him. But either way, it's it's a really good tandem. Well, and at any rate, it's consistency, right? Make sure that you are plugging in the same five guys every week and keeping them healthy. And that consistency goes a long way. I think we've got the two biggest acquisitions on offense covered. I think perhaps the biggest re-signing for the Seahawks is on offense as well. Chris Carson returning. How much confidence, John, does that give you just in in where the Seahawks run game is going? Because there was a lot of names that were thrown out there before that deal was done. That I mean, that's a huge move to keep him here. I think a lot of us thought heading into the offseason – that there's a good chance he'd be gone. I mean, he was one of the best running backs in the NFL over the last three years since he got healthy his second year. And I mean, the Seahawks, we all know they, they didn't have a lot of cap space, a lot of money to throw around. So we all thought, Ooh, this could be tough to keep him. And you know, you love Rashad Penny, but you don't know about the depth beyond that. Cause Carlos Hyde was also free agent. So to bring back Chris Carson, you know, especially going into a year in which Pete Carroll has made it clear he wants to get back to running the ball more effectively and, you know, being more balanced on offense. That's just huge for this offense to, to have Chris Carson and know you've got that one, two punch with Carson and Penny heading into the year. The other offensive positions and players that will be coming back to the Seahawks fullback, Nick Ballore, center, Ethan Posick, guard, Jordan Simmons and tackle Cedric Obwehi. So that is what you're looking at on offense. Those are the biggest additions, the biggest signings, the biggest free agents retained. Now I have waited a good eight or so minutes to bring up the next position group, the position group that I am most excited to see because I could honestly talk about the defensive line for a full podcast. This is the deepest group that certainly I've seen since 2012 and 13. I am so impressed by what that unit is shaping up to be. Oh, for sure. And it's funny, you know, you go back to, obviously they released Carlos Dunlap 
hoping to get him back, but you just don't know in that situation what's going to happen. And then I think a lot of us thought when they went out and spent a little money on Kerry Hyder Jr. that, okay, that's probably means they're not going to be able to get Dunlap back. And, you know, but Hyder's a good player, led the 49ers in sacks. So, you know, that's a great move on its own. And then you're able to go back and still resign Dunlap. I mean, I, we saw in the 2013-2014 teams what a deep defensive line rotation does for this team, a deep pass rush. And, you know, they've got guys coming back. They re-signed Benson Mayoa. You know, we're going to see Daryl Taylor for the first time when he's healthy. I, I, I am very excited about this pass rush and, you know, carrying off of – they had the most sacks in the NFL over the last nine weeks of the season, had 34 sacks. And now they've added guys to that group. It's, it's going to be fun to watch. Okay, that was a little bit of a test. I was trying to test my enthusiasm against your answer, and I was waiting to see if you were going to match it or if you were going to tell me that I was crazy. Thankfully, you did not tell me I was crazy. I mean, I can, but it doesn't just have to be about the defensive line. You know what, John, there's a reason that we haven't talked in a few months, okay? Let's just, let's keep this polite and above board. I mean, usually we we have travel and all this time to to do the fun stuff off the, you know, outside of the podcast yeah, of giving true. each other a hard time, but... We it usually happens over a few beers. I know. Yeah, you know, I, trust the, ho- me. the hotel bar, the plane ride, the, the bus ride. We, none of that. We haven't had that. You make it sound like we don't work when we're on a road trip, we John. Do, we work, folks. We work we very do. hard. But we have been saving up. The jabs and the barbs, they are going to be flying the first round of beers that we end up having. But let's go back to the Kerry Hyder conversation. Um, you know, he has drawn a lot of comparisons to Michael Bennett. And I think that it's not just the the stature, the body type, the position that he plays, but if things go the way that Pete Carroll would like them to go with that rotation, ideally he would be playing about the same number of snaps that Michael Bennett did during those years that you're talking about. Mike B did not play over 56% of those snaps. And so if you start looking at how deep this is and really just kind of the versatility that Kerry brings, that's a fun element that I can only imagine complementing Carlos Dunlap so well. Oh, for sure. And I mean, you go back to what you just said with Michael Bennett in those early years. I mean, people forget him and Chris Averill were not starters in 2013 and nobody on that team. I think Bennett did lead defensive linemen in playing time in 2013, even though it was under 60%. So deep rotation and guys who are versatile, you know, Kerry Hyder, the Michael Bennett comparison also goes back to kind of their path to the NFL. Both undrafted guys kind of had to make their way before getting established. And then that versatility of, yeah, he's a guy you can line up outside in these passing downs. He can line up inside, kind of similar. They did a lot of that with LJ Collier last year. I think you'll probably see a handful of guys that they move in and out. And, you know, I think this is getting a little off topic, but you look at defensive tackle right now, it doesn't look very deep, you know, especially they did have to let Jaron Reed go, some salary cap related moves, which, which is potentially a big loss. But I think some of those defensive tackle snaps that we're looking at will be filled by guys who are listed as ends on the roster. Well, yes, exactly. And I think that you could see even maybe an LJ Collier, not outside rushing quite as much, but helping out with some of that interior work. They did resign Puna Ford. That is a huge pickup. And it's fun to watch people get on board and really back Puna because he is, I think, one of our favorites in there just for watching and personality. And Al Wood coming back. That is going to be one of the more underrated signings of the Seahawks. Yeah. I mean, this is this team over the years, this front office has been really good at finding 
good value veteran defensive tackles. That's a position they've just always been able to kind of find that guy who's had a solid career and, and put him in a good spot to succeed here. And they've, they've had a lot of success with a lot of those guys, including Alwood a couple of years ago. So, you know, bringing him in, you're right. That's a, that's a really solid guy who can help you a lot and play a lot of snaps and be a great run defender. So yeah, I, you know, again, losing Jaron Reed is tough, but I, overall, when you look at this defensive line and bringing Puna Ford back, I'm, I'm very excited about this group. Well, and is it overstated to, I mean, we've talked about how good this group is going to be, but I also think it's not just the return of Dunlap, it's having him here for an entire year, right? It's the benefit of getting these guys in the building, whether that's virtually or actually in the building, right? Knowing that they can start from day one together instead of what last offseason felt like, right? And what training camp felt like and what it was when Dunlap came in during the middle of the year. Yeah. I mean, it, for any player jumping in midseason is always going to be a challenge. And, you know, he was coming from a totally different defense and just joined the team on the fly and still played incredibly well. He had five sacks. He basically closed out two wins with end of game sacks. So yeah, give him a full off season, even if some of it's virtual, just season learning the defense, being here for training camp and, and a preseason and all of that, get all these guys. And we, we hear it all the time. It, it defensive line is there's, cohesiveness it builds there's chemistry of knowing how a guy next to you likes to rush and and things like that so they can build that together starting training camp instead of in october well now let's move to the back end of this defense because i do think the defensive line and the back end of this defense it's a combination that you need to talk about together because the seahawks do lose a couple of pieces back there you don't have shaq griffin back this year and quentin dunbar who we didn't see for the full season he ended up signing with the lions so I do think there's a huge question mark around who's going to play cornerback and is there enough depth in the secondary? I also think that my stress level about that has gone down knowing what's going to happen up front. Oh, for sure. A good pass rush, as we all know, is the best friend of the, the secondary. It'll make life easier on those guys. It, to me right now, cornerback is you know one of the most intriguing positions going into training camp. We'll see what happens going forward. There's obviously the draft coming up. There's free agency. They, they might not be done adding to that group, but as it stands now, you've, you've got four guys with starting experience. You've got Trey Flowers, Demarius Randall, DJ Reed, and then they went out and added Akilah Witherspoon. None of those guys, I think you can just assume this guy is starting at this position to start the season. I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to handicap it yet, but I think you got to give all those guys chances at starting jobs. Randall was a three-year starter at Green Bay, a former first-round pick before he got moved to safety. So, you know, all those guys can do different things. It, you know, I, I don't know who's going to end up where, how that competition plays out. And again, they might still be adding guys, but they've added some guys and I feel like they've got good depth there, but do they have the two starters they want yet? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Well, and I think certainly the player that we are least familiar with, at least from a, how does he fit into the Seahawks system? Akilah Witherspoon, right? We know that he came from the 49ers. We know that he can play either side of the field. He was actually chosen higher than Shaq Griffin was in that 2016 draft. I know that he is coming out of a defensive scheme that is similar to what the Seahawks run. But John, do you have any questions as to whether he can transition to the right footwork and to that technique? Because we have not seen it happen where outside free agents come in and seamlessly fit into playing cornerback. Yeah, I mean, just as you said, I think I'd feel worse about it and be more worried about him being an outside free agent had he not come 
from a defense so similar and being teammate. I mean, we all saw when Richard Sherman was here, we saw how he takes young guys under his wing and likes to coach guys up. So it's not just the system, but you also had kind of the preeminent Pete Carroll era cornerback working with him in San Francisco. So I don't think it's going to be a hard adjustment when you talk about technique scheme, knowing the defense, you know, we'll just have to see how he plays and how he competes with other guys. But I think he's going to fit in just fine knowing the defense. You know what? That is a great point because I kept thinking about Robert Sala, right? Like I, yeah, I kept and that's thinking part of it about too. it. I mean, it's the, the defense, it's the coach and the scheme, but you got to look at who his, his yes, teammates were. His too. mentor would have been. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You go, you go back to every quarterback, whether it's Shaq, whether it's Trey Flowers, Therald Simon back in the day, just about every cornerback that's come through post Richard Sherman had Richard Sherman in his here coaching him up. And I'm sure Witherspoon had the same thing down there. Well, you know, we haven't talked to him yet, but that'd be something I'd be curious to ask him. Well, and I'm so glad that you brought up the name Richard Sherman because Richard Sherman is one of the names that skews every single draft conversation that we have had since <laughs> about 2012, right? Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, Cam Chancellor, Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner, KJ Wright, that group of players was so good, is still so good, the ones that are playing, right? And so talented that when it comes around to who are the Seahawks going to pick and how do we evaluate draft classes, I think that there is an unfair measurement and standard that was set by some of the greatest in franchise history. Oh, for sure. I mean, you they literally drafted two Hall of Famers 90 minutes apart on a Friday in 2012. I mean, you draft Bobby Wagner and Russell Wilson. It's it, a, it's an impossible standard to keep up. And B, I think people tend to see the failures in the draft that their own team has and not be aware of the other ones. I mean, the draft is just, it's hard to nail it. And there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, you find me a team that's consistently picking late, which the Seahawks, because they win, that's what they do. I, I think Baltimore is the one example of obviously nailing the quarterback late in the first round. And they've made some other really good picks, but just teams that pick late don't tend to have a ton of hits. And, and one last point I would make, I've seen people point out of like, you go look at a draft class and like, okay, they only hit on these three or four guys and they drafted 11. Well, I, I think what the point people miss is part of the reason John Schneider loves to trade back and acquire picks is he understands you're not going to get a lot of these right. And it's kind of this volume approach of if you drafted five or six guys and you nailed three or four of them, people would hail that as a great draft. You do some maneuvering and draft 11 guys and hit on four of them. People are going to go, oh, you only hit on four of 11. But that's kind of the point. You give yourself more shots to succeed if you are drafting a lot of guys. Well, and here's the other thing I'm going to add on to that. You got to understand what the Seahawks needs were. When you have so many franchise players on the team, you're not looking for these big time players to come in and play. Bobby Wagner's not going anywhere. He hasn't gone anywhere since 2012 when he was drafted. So you don't need to, to fill a lot of holes. The Seahawks have had a lot of consistency. And yes, they have turned over the roster in a number of places. But year over year, even if you only hit on one or two, even if it's Tyler Lockett, who's still on the team from that 2015 draft, right? Pretty big piece. Frank Clark was part of that draft. He's a big piece for Kansas City right now. 2016 was Jay Reed. I realize that he's not with the Seahawks now, but he was a pretty good player that you needed on your defense. It also has to be drafting for kind of what it is that you need and what's realistic. I, I think people miss that part of it too. 
Yeah. And that's going back to kind of the, you, you notice when your team gets stuff wrong more than when every other team and like 2017, look, Malik McDowell, you could not have foreseen how that would turn out. And that was undoubtedly turned out to be a bad pick because of what happened with him. But to my point of this kind of volume shooting, so to speak, you still got Shaq Griffin, who's a pro bowler. You got a stud running back in the seventh round in Chris Carson, David Moore, who is a solid number three guy. He did just leave him free agency, but was a big contributor for his four years. And then Ethan Posick, who, you know, emerged as a really quality starting center last year. So that's four guys out of a draft class. Again, if you had only drafted seven guys that year, you'd look at, okay, four, four starting caliber, good players, solid, but because some of those didn't work out in the unfortunate situation with Malik McDowell, people want to just say, Oh, 27 draft was terrible, but was it though? I don't know. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not going to call anything a terrible draft class. Not if John is, is running that one, but I will say this pressure is on this year with the Seahawks only having three draft picks. They've got a second round pick, a fourth round pick and a seventh round pick. I'd like to set an over-under on who buys the first round of tricks, John, is to whether we really only have three picks. Like, we've got to have at least four more, right? Like I would, I would think so. I mean, it's a little trickier to, I mean, in the years where they've really turned, you know, the obvious one was where they turned four picks into, what was it, 11 picks a couple of years ago. That was where you, you know, you had traded Frank Clark to get a first round pick and you had your own first round pick. So you had all this capital to to build off of. This year, that's a lot tougher when you're sitting at 56 as your first pick. Like, yeah, you can move back at 56 and add something, but you're not going to get, you know, the extra third or fourth rounder to move back a few spots like you would in the first round. So I still think they do some maneuvering, whether it's, you know, trading back on those picks, whether it's trading away a pick for next year. You know, we saw them do that last year. They traded a sixth rounder for a seventh. Um, you know, there's always a chance if there's a player on the current roster that some other team likes that a trade happens. So I, I'd be pretty surprised if they don't make five or six picks at least just cause I don't think John Schneider can sleep at night. If he only picks three players, that's just not in his DNA. <laughs> I think it would drive that, yeah. him crazy, but I, I, I don't think it's going to be a situation of turning three picks into 11 or something, but yeah, they'll, they'll add some, some way or another. Well, and the Seahawks have in some ways already made their selections, right? Yeah. Jamal Adams, right? In yeah. um, Dunlap is another one, right? Came out of this draft, essentially. Yes, already. and without knowing how anybody who played this last college season is going to perform or be able to adapt with how crazy that was, I still stand by that being a great choice because I'd rather have two proven defenders instead of taking my chances on somebody who is going to have to get up to speed in a hurry. Well, and that's a really good point. I think one reason we, we see a team that in most years loves to have as many draft picks as possible, be a little more willing to give them up is they understood going back to last summer when that Jamal Adams trade happened. We don't know at that point, they didn't even know if there'd be a college football season or what it would look like. If there was, there was no combine. There's been a lot of limitations on the exposure that they can have to players to get to know them. So there's probably less certainty about this draft than any in recent history. So yeah, you're a little more willing to trade away picks for, you know, again, two guys who will be huge parts of your defense this year. Okay, but that brings us with the last big pressing question on this podcast. Who do you think the Seahawks need to go after? Or let's make it even more general. What position do the Seahawks need to shore up in the draft? 
you know, again, we don't know for sure what's still going to happen in free agency. Although at this point, most free agency is probably done until after the draft. Most guys who haven't signed by now will probably wait it out till after the draft. But we, we talked about it a little bit. I think cornerback could make a lot of sense. You know, maybe there's a guy that you throw into the starting competition with those four guys we talked about receiver right now. Look, they've got probably the best one of, if not the best receiver duos in the NFL, but they don't have a clear cut number three on this team right now. They, you know, they lost David Moore in free agency, Philip Dorsett, who never played last year, but looked like he was going to be the number three before he got hurt. He's gone too now. So you've got Freddie Swain who had a very promising rookie year, but he's really the only other guy on the roster with any real playing time. So I think you need to add whether it's a draft. We know this team's had success with undrafted free agents, or maybe there's a veteran guy still out there one way or another. I think you need to add help at receiver. And then the third one I'll bring up is offensive line. You don't go into the draft feeling like you need anything necessarily because you made the trade for Gabe Jackson and you re-signed Ethan Postick. But I do think there's, if the right guys there, especially some interior line guys that you would might want to add both depth and competition. Or if you look at tackle, maybe it's looking long-term because both your starting tackles are heading into the last year of their contract. Well, I was actually going to bring up linebacker. We haven't talked about linebacker at all. And KJ Wright is still a free agent. We knew what KJ Wright was doing because I, the one I'll say the other one I do wonder is they're so deep at defensive end. Is there a player in that group that they see is a hybrid Bruce Irvin type potentially if they don't, you know, if KJ's back, obviously you've got your starting three, you know, you've got a great starting three. If, if that isn't the case, is there somebody who can kind of do that dual role like a Bruce Irvin? I don't know. Bruce Irvin was awfully unique, but yeah, that's, that's a good point. Strong side linebacker. If KJ is not back is, is pretty open right now. Well, and I would take linebacker out of the draft because we're probably going to need him to play special teams, right? Because your depth at special teams is going to be tested if Cody Barton needs to play. And then Ben Burkirvan is also one of your backup linebackers. So I like doing that in the draft. I actually like them. This is just me finding a wide receiver in free agency. Cause I think what's missing is the slot guy. I know that Tyler can play slot, but I'd like to see him on a more of an outside I, I think. Um, and I'd like to have a veteran who can play the slot, who can, uh, who can make those things happen. That's just me. Works for me. You know, usually this is the point in the podcast where I would ask what needs to happen for a Seahawks win. And I don't have any question like that to ask you because we have no control over what is going to happen in the Seahawks draft. But here's what we do know, John Boyle. It is not going to be four months between when we talk again because we are going to do this again after the Seahawks draft so that we can evaluate the draft class and how things are looking. How does that sound? That sounds wonderful. Fantastic. Get those barbs ready to go because we will spar and jab. And with that, we will wrap up this edition of the Seahawks Insiders podcast. Thanks for joining us.